This podcast episode is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the social impact centre of Salesforce, focused on partnering with a global community of changemakers. They provide access to powerful technology that empowers changemakers to build a better world. Salesforce.org's Education Cloud gives higher education institutions a single shared view of students, alumni and staff in an integrated CRM platform to create personalised experiences at scale, transforming learner engagements into lifelong relationships. Hi everyone, I hope you've been very well. Uh, Welcome to this next episode of The Edge, Accelerating Higher Education, uh, and part of our season two of our podcast series with Salesforce.org, where we take a fresh look at higher education and digital transformation. First of all, thanks for all the positive messages from our listeners, including from Bethany Colwell, a one-to-one digital integration technology specialist who has just moved into the field of user experience, who wrote, Hey Sophie, I just discovered your pod and now you are my new favourite walking buddy. Interesting to hear that leadership in the UK seem way more prepared for this madness than here in the southern US. Thanks for what you do. Well, thank you very much, Bethany, and I hope that you're listening to this whilst walking along somewhere lovely, and I must say that that interpretation of events is very generous of you. Indeed, since our last episode on campus reopening, universities here in the UK have struggled with COVID outbreaks among the student population, with many questions arising around the requisite student experience on campus and off. In the north of the UK, major COVID outbreaks have been reported at Newcastle University, Northumbria University and Durham University, to name but a few all over the country. And with many of these institutions turning to fully online learning just weeks after reopening their face-to-face teaching on campus. Why wasn't online learning the go-to, ask parents and student associations? And how are we going to go about our traditional Freshers' Week endeavours and good quality learning, ask students? In this episode, we seek to explore how the student experience is being created and supported in 2020 at our higher education institutions. In conversation with leaders and students from across EMEA and the US, we ask... How is the university experience stacking up versus student expectations? The intent to innovate is there. Um, The energy to innovate is there as well. But the systems within the universities are not ready. How are universities adapting to support careers readiness in 2020? I think, I mean, all of the conversations that we're having are about how what's happened with COVID is making us really reflect ourselves and rethink about what we need to be doing to help enable our students both in terms of working out what they want to do with their in their careers career planning how we help get them connected to employers how we can bring in alumni how we can think about different types of skills like Kate mentioned with the entrepreneurship skills and to make it more of a sort of rounded education that they're having within universities. So I think career services are really responding very quickly to this, which is great, but we've we've still got a lot to learn. How are students co-creating the student experience they want to see? And what can universities do more of? Are we using some of our time wrongly and could we be using technological advances to 
just make sure that we focus on the things that matter whilst continuing to do the things that we know students need. And if these are questions that you are currently wrangling with, I would urge you to go and check out the ebook available in conjunction with this episode titled Making the Most of the New Normal, delivering an outstanding digital student experience and you can find to download among our show notes. To begin, let's get to know this week's guests. Uh, first question, um, please could you introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, my name is Rex Béchu. Uh, I'm French and uh, I'm, I just graduated from the University of Sheffield, uh, where I used to be the international students officer. And following my year as international students officer, I was asked uh, to be the chair of the first student advisory group for UKISA, uh, UK Council for International Student Affairs, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, and I've just finished my term and I'm handing over to Nebu. Hi, I'm, I'm Nebu George. I'm from India. Um, I'm from Mumbai originally. Um, I am a PhD student um, at Bangalore University in North Wales, and uh, my topic is geochemical archaeology. Um, I did my undergrad and master's at Bangor as well, and uh, I've been um, at Bangor since 2013. And uh, I have been also working as an international student ambassador um, here at Bangor since 2014, and found out about the opportunity to become uh, an international student ambassador with UKISA under their RIA International campaign, and applied to it in about January, and since late February onwards, I have been part of the UKISA team of ambassadors and we had Rex as our chair and it's only recently that I took over the job of being the chair for student advisory group. That's absolutely brilliant yeah thank you both and Rex you were sort of the student advisory group chair as this pandemic sort of unfolded and then Nebu you have sort of taken that over as we've gone into this new um, September term um, so I wanted just to start, if if you could both give your experience of studying now. So where you are, you know, is that a kind of hybrid experience? Um, are you in any form of lockdown or what, what's that kind of feel like at the moment? Um, yeah, I can go first if you want. I, um, so I'm currently studying at uh, ESCP, which is a business school in Paris. Um, so I've recently moved back to France and... I think it's fair to say that things are a little different when it comes to the lockdown or COVID uh, measures in France at the moment. But right now, the school has gone into a hybrid mode as of this week because of new governmental restrictions. Uh, we can only have half the students on campus. So what the school has done is that they've split the students uh, by family names. And we are doing one week with... Uh, students uh, from A to I and then the other week um, which is next week where everybody who's from A to I will be online and the rest of the students will be on campus so at the moment I'm on campus and next week I'll be online and this is a bit strange Hmm. uh, but it seems to work so we get a bit of you know live classes and a bit of online classes. Nebu as well you you were sort of giving your experience before we started recording of uh, teaching in this context, but I just wondered what your own experience has been like uh, recently as well. Well, first off, during lockdown, it was a sudden change to 
online study and remote work, but it was it, it was quite difficult as well because um, you know my work involves a lot of lab work and field field trips as well. So all that had to be shut down, which meant several delays with uh, my PhD work. And in terms of um, students, they almost all of their study was switched to online with online lectures and online exams or open book exams or everything done entirely online. But with the start of new semester, uh, Bangalore University essentially is going for a blended approach um, where all your lectures are online and um, all this, um, well, as far as possible, the seminars are done face-to-face. -face. And um, recently I started a teaching assistant job with my department as well. So I am leading the seminars where we used to have lectures in larger rooms. We have seminars with up to 10 students at a time. And uh, so even if there's in a module about 60 students, we are divided into uh, about six groups uh, at different times. So 10 students in a large group sitting at a distance of at least two meters from each other. And uh, that's how they're going about at the moment. But it's it's different because that's the only sort of face-to-face -face interaction students have in person, but rest everything has gone online. And that also means the extracurricular activities or the essential bit of the first university student experience. Everything has gone online. Um, our agenda was quite, was and always is um, just trying to cover all bases of international student support, making sure that we we don't have just good international student support, but outstanding international student support. We have so many international students in the UK. The University of Sheffield, when I was ISO, had over 10,000 international students. And so, you know, what do we do to specifically help international students and to not just provide support to all students and think we've covered all bases? Um, so I think that, you know, that's part of the of the agenda pre-COVID, and it still is the agenda post-COVID, but I think COVID has kind of highlighted some things that were, you know, particularly hard for international students. Um, you're talking about what international students went through, and it's important to distinguish international students who were able to go back home during mm -hmm. that time, and international students who had to quarantine in the UK. And, you know, I think both are difficult in a different way. Um, if I think if you have to quarantine away from home and away from your family, you feel very, very easily and very uh, quickly isolated, mm. uh, especially if there's you know a time difference between um, the UK and your home country. Um, I think that that makes it... Um, you know, you're already away from your family when you're an international student. And just not knowing when you'll be able to go back home, not knowing when you'll be uh, able to uh, leave your house. Um, they're like both very stressful situations. Um, so I think there was that part of international students that were quarantining in the UK and then international students that were able to go back home, but that then felt, you know, they were far away from university. Once again, if there was a time difference, uh, adapting to online lectures at uh, maybe in the middle of the night, um, that can be very difficult. Um, and just feeling like you're getting the same amount of support 
from the university when you're away, sometimes that can be tricky. It's a Tuesday afternoon here in the UK and we have Victoria and Kate with us. So thanks so much for joining us on the EdTech podcast. My first question is, please, can you tell us who you are and what you do? I'm Victoria Wade. I'm Head of Careers for the Specialist Colleges of the University of London, working for the Careers Group, University of London. So it's my responsibility to head up the career services across our colleges, including the Royal Veterinary College and St George's Medical School, um, the School of Advanced Study and, and many others. And I'm Kate Daubney. I am currently Head of Careers and Employability, which is the career service of King's College London and one of the services of the Careers Group. And in October, I'm going to become the director of the Careers Group and I'll also be setting up the University of London's new Centre of Excellence for Careers and Employability. Victoria, first question to you. What are some of the schemes that the College Careers Service have in place to assist with careers readiness when we think about more usual times than perhaps 2020? Alongside the traditional offer that we give of one-to-one appointments, workshops, webinars and careers fairs. We also work a lot with employers to help support our students with gaining internships and business placements and networking opportunities. We work within academic programmes and with our academic colleagues to ensure that as many students as possible are supported and that the employability skills that they are gaining are not seen as separate to the courses that they're studying, but as something that's intrinsic that they gain from their studies and their extracurricular activities. We also do a lot of work online. So even before the COVID outbreak, career services have been working online, online delivery, One of the colleges that I head up is purely distance learning students. So they always do all of their learning online. So in that capacity, we were able to create a a self-directed online careers and employability related learning platform, which encompassed a number of different things. So we created a career planning module, which we launched to 42,000 students, which is a structured online learning activities of which it combines the students' ability to learn about how to create their own career plan, as well as linking to University of London online library and having input from global employers. And it enables the students to do that in their own time. And Coupled with that, we created careers cafes and careers drop-ins to help with student engagement and connectedness. So because we've got students from across the globe, we wanted to help facilitate their learning from each other and a way that they can learn and exchange ideas through us, facilitating it and helping them to do that. So we really do put students at the heart of everything we do and to make sure that we are creating career services that are accessible and engaging for all of our students and relevant for them and something that that they are going to find useful. So my name is uh, Farshida Zafar. I am a a first-generation refugee child from Afghanistan and I've been working at the Erasmus University Rotterdam now for eight years and my journey started at the Erasmus School of Law in uh, Rotterdam as well. Um, And in 2012, I started um, working on the revision of our part-time education. Um, Our part-time education is more of a a curriculum designed for lifelong learners and uh, people who want to switch careers. Now, back in 2012, a lot of the education in the part-time program 
took place in the evenings. And um, yearly, there would be around 18 to 20 students who would enroll for the law program. So my first task uh, at Erasmus University was to come up with a plan to um, reinvent the part-time education or reinvent the lifelong learning program for law. And uh, I had exactly um, four months to do it, um, which was uh, great because, you know, time pressure makes you think creatively. Um, and I started with doing a lot of research uh, in other programs and see what kind of didactical methods would work and would not work, what were the pros and the cons and how to change it uh, bottom up. And I came up with the idea to um, scratch all the evening classes and concentrate all the education on Friday afternoons um, and have 60% of all the teaching done online and 40% of the teaching done face-to-face. -face. Um, so basically a blended learning uh, program. And the reason why I did this is because a lot of the uh, research and a lot of the interviews I held with uh, prior former part-time education students, um, they basically told me that a lot of the time that they went to university, they went there on campus to socialize, to interact, and to meet new people. Um, and the learning really, really happened at home. So the blended learning uh, program was a way to keep the socialization and the interaction um, still as a, a focus for the on-campus learning and uh, do all the knowledge transfer online. Now, that program started with the idea of, we're doing this for 30 students, maybe maximum 30 students per year. And uh, well, eight years along the road, we have uh, somewhat over 800 students in that program. And the uh, blended learning approach has been rolled out now over our university in the past couple of years, where we see a lot of other faculties taking the similar approach to um, tap into new target audiences, but also to uh, modernize their uh, form of education. Now, that was just one project uh, when I started working at uh, Rotterdam University. Um, but a lot of the projects that I've been doing have uh, to do with um, technology. So I've created a few educational applications, mobile applications, um, designed a virtual reality courtroom, and um, a streaming service for legal uh, literature for our students. Um, and all of that basically resulted to Erasmus X. I am the Director of Industry Solutions um, at Salesforce.org, focused on the student experience. And so I'm responsible for the solutions and how we go to market with solutions to support the student experience. So everything from advising, student advising, to student service, to career services, um, and student engagement um, falls in my bucket. Um, and that's part of the larger education cloud team at Salesforce.org. Uh, and so... I'm actually really excited to be on with you today to talk to you a bit about the, the work we've been doing um, as, as the kind of broader education cloud team, but specifically uh, in this space with the student experience and around career readiness as well. I, I used to be a teacher um, uh, for several years, 
before moving over into this space and gosh so much has changed uh, so it's really interesting to see uh, you know what it was like then versus now or even as I was a student so um, I get to work on all that fun stuff every day uh, and explore better strategies for supporting the student experience. So there we have it, an amazing array of experience. And in speaking to these guests, it's clear that when it comes to student experience, especially in 2020, there are a few consensus points that come up. So let's listen in. Now is the time for universities to be bold in their approaches and use of educational technology to refine support for individual students for academic goals, well-being and career readiness. But how? Well, two sector reports this year point out that higher education technology implementation has improved, but is still in fact on the most part basic. That's fine in and of itself, but in the joint Advance HE and HEPI Student Experience Survey of 2020, it states, where advanced technology is used, students are significantly more likely to feel they have received good value, and perhaps more significantly to feel they have learnt a lot and that their skills gained will play a key role in their future, i.e. the use of advanced technology has an effect on what is considered a more positive and productive academic experience. But whilst 2020 has pushed universities to embrace new ways of working, the JISC Student Digital Experience Insight Survey of 2020, collected across 2020 including pre-Covid and after the pandemic started times, showed that not enough use of online technology was collaborative. Certainly, more can be done to be creative with the use of technology in terms of learning design and ambition to develop skills needed in the workplace, to support online friendships and to stop people feeling isolated. In addition, only 55% of surveyed students had created a digital record or portfolio of their learning and only 20% of students said they used simulations, virtual or augmented reality. But what did our guests think? Having now experienced, you know, this strange situation for six months or more, um, what would you like to see more of from the combination of, you know, technology that is available and the universities together? So, you know, where has technology been useful or less useful? And what would you like to see more of for the student experience? Um, so, so in my school at ESCP, we have been um, we've been doing we've literally just finished a digital uh, Spark seminar on um, uh, AI and just some of the ways in which uh, you know we can use um, data ethically, but use data to try to to better um, lives uh, of everyone, and I think. There are definitely things that uh, universities could be uh, doing using technology. Obviously, right now, we have no other ways to meet and to do lectures and to do career services, uh, online fairs, um, than to use technology. And I feel like, well, we've seen a shift of um, of universities starting to use Zoom and, you know, Blackboard Collaborate um things like that. But I think we could definitely see something where uh, we make it just slightly more interactive and just a bit more accessible. And I wonder to what extent we could uh, we'll use AI and data um, in a way that just helps students feel 
like they are you know more connected i wonder do we connect students that um, have the same interests so that they can meet with students from all over the world without actually meeting in person uh, but that care about the same things uh, mm -hmm. through our university platforms do we uh, do we use data to ensure that we can uh, better connect uh, alumni with students we already have mentoring schemes with alumni and students but do we do we do we use it in a way that uses all the extent of the technological advances that we have or are we still doing it in a um, in a kind of mechanical hmm. matching way uh, are we losing time over those things that we could be using to focus on for example bettering uh, the uh, our conversations with employers uh, in the UK that don't have uh, you know, tier two sponsor, uh, sponsorship license. Yes, great answer. Um, and it made me think of the sort of rather arbitrary nature of um, students being selected by alphabetical name, A, yes. A to I, rather than, you know, okay, you guys are going to either work well together or challenge each other because you think differently and if you could bundle people in that way. But, um, and, and Nebu, do you have any other thoughts on that? Um. I'm quite passionate about employability and I see an opportunity there with uh, with us having to switch everything online and something that often happens is in India, we have something called campus interviews and for students that are over here to not miss out on those opportunities, let's say it, can, it doesn't need, need to be just about India for students going back to those uh, uh, to their home countries and there are these big companies that are invited to um, universities to conduct um, to re recruit students essentially with us having to do everything online that can be done now with UK universities where we can invite big companies from China India or um, whichever home country the student might be uh, uh, from and ask them oh you know we can ask us uh, international students to apply to those companies and uh, probably even arrange for a campus interview such thing which is essentially a group interview which can be done over zoom and, um, you know, that way you're promoting international student employability. So I see an opportunity like that over there where all this while the problem was, oh, it's from a different country. It's, you know, we have the problem of uh, distance, time. Now suddenly that is not that big of a problem. And, and Kate, you mentioned earlier on some of the headlines. So just to follow up on that, I mean, I've got here some estimates suggest that new graduates are facing the toughest labour market for 75 years. I wondered how King's and the University of London are approaching that triangulation of, say, students, industry, perhaps your alumni, and then also if people want to go into entrepreneurship. So where perhaps they would have had physical work experience or internships, has any of that sort of pivoted to online? And how you're keeping that conversation going as employers themselves are sort of navigating completely new terrain as well? Yes, I think that's a really great question. And I think many employers have chosen to sort of back away from a conventional partnership with a career service because they're obviously figuring out some really big questions like what is the future of our business? You know, how are we going to work going forward? So 
A lot of employers are currently choosing to do their own thing. They're wanting to connect with students directly. So we've been looking at how we can integrate that into the sort of conventional offering that we might typically have have organized, such as, you know, a careers fair is a very classic way of, of engaging students and employers together. So we've reinvented the careers fair concept as, as a fortnight of different kinds of digital employer events. So sort of breakfasts and networking and skills sessions and panel events. And we've sort of created a very complex ecosystem of different ways so that students can see the different solutions that employers are bringing. So I think that's the first thing is employers are experimenting themselves. And and I think reassuring students, you know, I think this is a great opportunity to look positively at the fact that things might be different. And I think taking a strategic approach that can be quite challenging. But I think you know, the message to students is look at what employers are doing. You know, be a little bit critical about that. Think about why does this work for them? And I think one key area you, you just mentioned is around internships. So there was a lot of press this summer around the fact that students felt very much the absence of in-person internships. But a number of companies have sort of leapt in with virtual internships. Victoria, do you want to say a bit about the Bright Network? Yeah, so we joined in with some of the Bright Network who ran some virtual internships, which included employer seminars, and then students would work in groups to do some group work samples. They'd get feedback on those. They would then have some networking booths where they could speak to employers, as well as getting some CV advice. And it was open to all students across the globe who wanted to take part they just had to apply for it but it was really successful in giving students the access to those employers and the learning online to just think about it in a different way and I think employers know they've got some work to do on that. I mean, I think currently we might argue that it's a relatively simplistic delivery model. And Victoria's sort of experience of working with distance learning programs shows how far employers can go on creating a slightly more dynamic sort of multi-mode learning and feedback experience. And I'd encourage students actually to talk to employers about that. You know, if you're on an internship, come up with some ideas about different ways for co-creating content. I think we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, what is it that the students saying how are they going to sort of present themselves to employers and I think it's a great example of do an internship and give some feedback about different ways in which it can be done you mentioned also um, entrepreneurship so we are very lucky at Kings we have the entrepreneurship institute and we also have our own resources for students who want to go on and be self-employed and I think it's quite easy sometimes for students to think that they would only do an entrepreneurship program if they wanted to be an entrepreneur but we know that employers value very much some of those core skills of entrepreneurship in an intrapreneurial sense within companies. So things like, you know, resilience, disruption, building teams, thinking lean. So we've done a lot of collaborative work with, uh, with the Entrepreneurship Institute, which has turned out to be very useful now. Um, so within Erasmus X, we have a mission to challenge the um, educational status quo by providing a more student or human-centered learning experience with a strong focus on student agency um, and, um, of course, um, emerging technologies, because once a tech geek, always a tech geek, is what I always say, um, in a very complex, innovative setting. And what we actually mean with that is we want to offer students a different, more uh, personalized learning route um, using technology and um, giving them the experience or at least uh, facilitate um, their experience in working with a lot of stakeholders. So that's basically in a nutshell what we're trying to do. Um, it's very abstract, very high over. 
But if we trickle it down and make it more concrete, um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to engage our partners, our city partners, our governmental partners, our private partners to work with us in creating new learning experiences for students where students themselves decide what it is that they want to learn. Um, so the responsibility for the learning is with the student themselves. Um, and a perfect example of that is our um, currently launched uh, minor, where we actually tell the students, uh, you have to work in a team. Uh, you have to use design thinking to find an educational complex problem on our campus or somewhere else in the world, whatever you feel like. And you have to provide us a solution within 10 weeks. But along that project-based learning is a very individual learning line because what we've done is we have created a rubric where students are forced to think about what kind of role do, wanna, do I want to play in this team? What kind of skills do I need to possess to be an effective team member? Um, am I missing skills? Am I lacking certain skills? If so, what am I going to do to obtain those skills? And where am I going to get my knowledge? Because we're not giving them any literature. We're not forcing them to read tons of articles or books or scientific papers. We're basically leaving the whole learning part up to the students. And the fantastic thing is we've just entered our third week. And what I can see already from the assignments is that the students take it extremely seriously because this is the first time in their academic career where the learning revolves around them. And it doesn't revolve around the teacher or the safety net of an exam because we don't have a traditional exam. Um, and by breaking it open, breaking open the system, um, I can already see a, a huge um, growth in engagement and motivation. For example, the students they're already working ahead and they're already making plans to uh, create their team charter and create their personal lesson plan. And it's fantastic to see how much of um, creativity comes up when you leave these kids to figure it out themselves. This is quite um, bold in a university environment and in a lot of university environments, this would be quite new. Um, although there is a trend where you start seeing, you know, more spin-off and more kind of ideation activity in, in, in higher education, which, which it needs. But how did, how did you get the sort of the buy-in from, from the whole university to do this? Uh, because that, that can sometimes be a little bit difficult. So um, did you have to do a lot of convincing or was it, uh, was it an easy job? Um, I think... Well, I think it's never an easy job, regardless of the university you work in or work at. Yeah, uh, I think it's always hard because, um, you know, universities are not the are usually not the first to adapt to new situations. Let me just say it like that. Um, so, yes, of course, there there was um, quite some convincing, quite some mission work to do. Um, I also think that um, the uh, COVID um, restrictions and the, and the corona crisis basically also helped us uh, quite some bits here and there. Um, but what I think is more important to mention is the fact that, yes, this was a really, really tough route. 
Um, and basically, it took me eight years um, from my start in 2012 until, um, well, basically January 2020 to get our university um, to really invest in innovation. What I see happening a lot um, in, in many universities who have innovation hubs is that the intent to innovate is there. Um, the energy to innovate is there as well. But the systems within the universities are not ready. They're not ready to accommodate uh, a radical innovation hub. They're not ready to accommodate um, radical thinkers and um, have systems in place that support innovation instead of hinder it. And what I mean with that is that the way you see um, universities and their accountability structures and their governance structures, um, they're quite a big obstacle um, for innovators. Um, for example, when you are reporting on your finances and budgets and stuff like that, um, which is, uh, you know, you would think that's a minor thing, but uh, I think it's quite a large chunk of our work as well. Um, you can see that the systems that are designed are not there designed for innovation. They're, they're designed for the regular process management type of work. So um, what I'm trying to say with that is that although there's a lot of universities who want to really, really be innovative and who want to push radical innovations to reinvent or reimagine education are still very stuck to old methods and to old customs and traditions and conventions and systems. So, yes. yeah, and, and, and that makes it really, really hard to push for real innovation. I so, agree, totally yeah. agree. And, and from where I'm sitting and my sort of exposure and, and experience with, with uh, universities is also that this is potentially, especially now, given the situation we're in with COVID and how this is putting new pressures on universities, is that that is potentially the biggest hurdle they're, they're facing to kind of turn that ship around to kind of more forward-looking and, you know, innovation-led um, sort of academic institution. Um, and would you agree with that? Or, or do, you, do you think that uh, that's actually one of the smaller things to overcome? I, I think I can agree with that. I also think, um, you know, I, I, I really feel that the COVID uh, crisis has shown university what their resiliency is. Um, for example, in 2016, I was drafting um, the vision for online education for our university. And as a part of that vision, uh, we wanted to create a physical space with a full-on, full-decked professional studio. Um, now, I, you know, if you think it's hard to gain enough um, uh, support for your radical ideas, it's even harder to gain support to build a, a fully-decked professional studio, yeah. um, especially when budgets are tight in higher education. Um, I am extremely, extremely proud of our, um, of my coworkers, of our board, that they still managed to push through the studio. Because one of the biggest things that I've seen happening here in Rotterdam is that when we went in full lockdown, it took us literally 
maybe a couple of days before all systems were go to uh, offer online education. So I, I think I'm not exaggerating if I say that we had 40,000, so that is uh, four zero thousand um, clips, uh, video lectures shot just in um, a time span of three or four months. Now that would not have, that would have never been possible if we didn't have the right infrastructure. So, you know, and, and these things, um, if I look at our university, I'm super happy with our adaptation, with our resiliency. Um, and I'm also extremely proud to be working here because, you know, investing in a project like Erasmus X is basically saying we are going to take this immense risk and figure out if it makes sense, yes or no. And Kate, you also mentioned at the beginning your work around careers service hub of excellence, I think it was called, but you can correct me on that. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you have planned with that as well? I'd love to. I haven't decided quite yet, but I... (laughs) So it's the new University of London Centre of Excellence for Careers and Employability. And one of the things that I think will be very important is to capture some of the sorts of work that Victoria's team have been doing with distance learners. So thinking about some very different ways that we engage with students online. Actually, Victoria, it'd be really nice if you could give us an insight perhaps into some of the ways in which one-to-one engagement has been transformed. Yeah, sure. So we traditionally we would have one to one interactions with students, whether that was a CV check or some careers guidance, helping students to work out what they want to do, what the next steps are. But that has been quite challenging given the high volume of students that we have and the quite minimal resources because career services are having to do quite a lot with not very much. But equally, there was something there about how could we bring students together to help exchange knowledge and bring that learning into one place so we created career drop-ins and career cafes which are guidance sessions which will be facilitated by a careers consultant on a particular topic and it would be just exactly that facilitation rather than the kind of chalk and talk careers consultant telling the students what was going on it was much more interactive and the feedback has been really really great what we found across the board is that we are still in developing the processes of of how we do things and working out what's the most effective using digital tools and capabilities means that we have never been more connected to our students as we have them now but we are continually learning and evolving in this space. So one of the great things we found is that we're able to do things, new things with students and innovative things and then get their feedback as to whether that works or not and and adapt it as we need to. And going back to Kate's point about the employers, we are also doing that with employers as well. So getting them on board to do more interactive work with the students and again, finding out what works and what doesn't. So I think it would be quite easy to think that a centre of excellence was sort of capturing a permanent way of best practice. But I think what Victoria is describing is something that's quite evolving and that we're comfortable with the fact that it evolves in real time. And, and you'll, you'll know yourself, Sophie, that you know in some of the best digital education work, things are co-created. They're quite flexible. They're quite fluid. We're taking feedback from what students want. We're co-creating that experience with the student instead of for the student. So one of the things I think the Centre of Excellence is really going to focus on, and, and I think digital careers education is inevitably going to be a, a sort of strong pillar of that, is you know what are the new ways of using technology platforms? 
platforms to deliver this kind of work that's traditionally been sort of very in-person, one-to-one based? You know, how can we reinvent that? So it sounds like it's more about sort of ecosystem building potentially around different industry sectors as well. You know, obviously it's evolving, but part of those cafe conversations is about creating conversations around specific sectors. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. That's completely spot on. We are finding that that does create the most kind of that sense of community that you you mentioned and also the kind of very key learning that actually is relevant to those students because they're doing a similar course and we can bring on employers who are prevalent in those spaces in that sector. So, yeah, it is building those communities based on the courses quite specifically. And equally, we're hoping to spin off of that, potentially thinking about some alumni, online alumni mentoring schemes, doing more specific type careers fairs, mentoring programmes with employers. So it's enabling us just as a stepping off point. The next consensus point, students expect careers development, guidance and industry networking from their universities, COVID or no COVID. In the Advanced HE and HEPI Student Experience Survey of 2020, the authors write, Overall, it is striking that gaining the right kind of work experience is seen as most critical, slightly ahead of the more academically focused goal of getting the best degree possible. Many current courses have an employability focus running through them, with placements often forming a key element. However, with the current COVID-19 crisis, there is understandable concern as to whether the same level of placements will be available to students this year and next. In the conversations with guests for this episode, this expectation to forge industry opportunity in a smart way came through very clearly. So how can technology help? Um, recently, I was actually busy doing some research. Um, I conducted research with roughly 45 individuals uh, across 32 higher ed institutions, several of which were um, really fantastic European institutions, including the University of Plymouth, Portsmouth, uh, gosh, I can't think of Bucerius Law School, LSE. Um, And in those conversations, I increasingly came across this need for these departments to better prepare their students for careers and really embed it into their academic experience. So it's not seen as something entirely separate. Um, And honestly, the research really reinforced the challenges that we've been hearing um, when it comes to career readiness. And probably you you have too. Um, So for example, at the 2020 Davos meeting, the World Economic Forum predicted that in Europe alone, the impending skills gap will lead to 1.67 million unfilled vacancies for ICT professionals. And, you know, we know and we are hearing over and over again that institutions have to support different types of students and provide opportunities then for learning new skills. And undoubtedly, there are going to be concerns now about the impact of the current pandemic um, on the economy and job offers and Also, in a recent survey, you know, we we saw that 51% of UK respondents said that the COVID-19 pandemic has made them rethink entirely their career path. So, you know, this really speaks to then the importance of the careers office at a university, thinking of this as a long-term career strategy um, and really, you know, rethinking how to engage employers and kind of move away from that siloed approach. 
Um, and so, you know, for us, we're asking ourselves, where does Salesforce fit in, right? Where does the Salesforce technology fit in? And typically careers offices have or need um, three main technologies to support their work. And they're largely complementing each other. You know, first and foremost, typically a careers office will have uh, a career information uh, and resources tool that includes those job listings and applications. Um, they'll likely have a web conferencing tool combined with some sort of virtual event management uh, to take care now of virtual career events given the pandemic and all the planning and the handling of those. And then there's this platform that brings it all together from a data and a relationship perspective to create this sort of network of support around students. And that's really where Salesforce comes into this with our platform approach to supporting this. Um, we have four pillars of the Salesforce career solution that we've been working on to enhance career readiness and employer relations. The first pillar um, is the student advising that I mentioned earlier. You know, we have a purpose-built advising solution, Salesforce Advisor Link, that can really be the foundation for a lot of the great work that careers advisors and career coaches are doing on the ground in advising and guiding on life paths. And then there is the education piece. You know, how do we ensure that students are educated towards the jobs they want to get and the impact they want to make. And, you know, we have tools that enable skills development as well. The third one is uh, tracking. So using that data in the platform, as I mentioned, using the constituent relationship management capabilities or otherwise known as CRM to really engage employers and track those student outcomes. Um, and finally, you know, we have a lot of um, events providers or virtual event management uh, providers in our Salesforce ecosystem um, that can do a lot of that planning around the careers events. And, you know, we know it's more important now more than ever to personalize virtual career and employer events. So, you know, the, the end goal for us is helping students to really un unlock access to those fulfilling careers, giving them the tools that they need, putting them a on a path to success and really helping to engage those employers that they might want to work for. And, you know, the idea is to really democratize access to opportunity and increase career readiness and life purpose for all students. And, you know, we do believe and as I've been looking at this for so long now, and I think back to my own experiences in the field itself, you know, every student can be set up for career success and get the dream job they want and make the impact they want to make, regardless of who they know, where they live, or even what school they attend. So, you know, it makes me really happy to <laughs> perhaps uh, end on, on that note and to have shared with you what we're hearing. Um. The main reason that I joined the UKISA and the VN International Student Ambassador Program was for that very important word, employability, especially among the international students sector, is not something that's spoken about much. And um, in, even in terms of data, um, as in the evidence base for how many of the international students who do come here lead, uh, have gone on to various different kinds of jobs, or uh, have they been successful or not, or any kind of data from the alumni as well. It's not very concrete. We don't have a strong evidence base. So considering that with this year, with so many delays, hiccups, with the economy shrinking mm -hmm. and studies online, with practical field work or work experience not as the same as our predecessors, I don't know how the current and incoming students are being made more employable 
in an economy in the UK or worldwide where the competition is going to be among the toughest in years. And it also makes you wonder, would it, is it really worth traveling so far away from your country to gain a degree that for now at least seems mostly online? That is why this year you can, there's cross-sector employ, employability group for international students that has been set up, which is led by UKISA, ACAS, um, Universities UK, and several other organizations. And they are spearheading to encourage universities and uh, the government to help international students. One of the ways is to actually get universities and um, employers, especially some medium and small businesses, get talking so that they know that, okay, there is this post-study work visa coming in and it is actually easy for you to employ these students. And um, it's valuable that they actually contribute to the economy as well, because these are highly skilled students that are coming out of UK universities. Mm -hmm. And it, rather than causing an essential brain drain from UK, UK back to the home, their home countries or driving students away back to the home countries, those students can be utilised here to help the economy over here. This brings us on to our final point that came out in the chats. That is, that student experience is a joint venture and not something for the university to impart. Students must make their voice heard and get ready to co-design their wish for experience together with the university colleagues. On this point, there is some reason to be optimistic. Alison Johns, the Chief Executive for Advance HE, stated in the Student Survey of 2020, which I highly recommend that you dig through, that it is interesting to see that the data suggests that remote learning post-lockdown has brought some closer engagement between teaching staff and students, and this has even led to improved directed independent learning. We must harness and sustain this progress into the new era. For very obvious reasons, we need to listen extremely careful to student comments about educational technology. Now, this is encouraging stuff, and I just hope the systems Farshida talks of allows for more of this listening, as as we know, no two students are the same, so student experience needs to be refined and personalised for part-time, full-time and international students as just some examples. Um, something I would say is that always there are avenues and you know resources available within the university just students need to raise it up whenever there is a need because one of the biggest problems i've often even i myself used to be quite reserved and wouldn't say until there's a dire need but whenever you speak to anyone in the university there will be someone who will guide you to the right place for example at Bangor university one of the things they're doing for in case students have to self-isolate is help with getting them groceries and other thing is something like counseling services. Mental health is often perhaps not spoken enough during these times. And students who are in lockdown, that is something they do need. So perhaps something like counseling services for, lock, uh, for students in lockdown is quite important. And that is you know, some ways where you could support students who have to self-isolate for whatever reason that might be. In this podcast, we're also addressing the fact that universities and higher education is going to face some incredible challenges, uh, which are kind of probably more accentuated now because of COVID. And what I'm hearing from, from you is that throughout your kind of university career, um, you know, dealing with the kind of uh, law side first, is that you sort of focused on a number of things. You focused on innovation. You focused on student engagement and you 
to kind of help that student engagement, uh, you also focused on flexibility. Now, these are kind of three really important uh, key facets of kind of strategies that universities need to consider. And I think, you know, this is quite a good segue to kind of get us into um, Erasmus X. But would you agree that these are kind of linchpins for, for what you're going to be talking about, uh, explaining to us what Erasmus X is all about and why you sort of feel this project is also really important and obviously has the buy-in from the university? Yes, yes. Um, I totally agree with you on these three points. I think the focus of innovation um, comes from um, the need to keep your education up to date. Um, the way I see education and the way I've seen education when I start, first started working um, at the uh, Erasmus University is that although we have a, a, a huge advancement in technology, our learning methods, methodologies, but also our learning support was still stuck um, in, in, you know, in, 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 a, in a past decade. Um, and the way I saw it is that we can use technology to enhance education and to um, create more flexibility, but also to make education more accessible for people who are in a different um, phase of their life or who are in a different country even. Um, but in order to do so, we need to understand what the actual student needs are. So instead of taking the traditional approach of thinking we as a university know what our student needs, actually engage the student in the discussion and have that conversation about you know, the, the, what the student actually needs and how we can actually uh, support that need. Um, so, and I think if, if I look at Erasmus X and how that started, it also started with a very student-centered approach. Um, throughout my career, I've been in touch with a lot of students and I've coached a lot of students, I've mentored a lot of students, and all these students had a certain thing in common is that in some way or in some some phase of their study, they felt that you know they were doing the same repetitive task all over. And so they started looking for um, uh, you know obtaining certain skills that they probably need in their professional uh, careers. They started to look for that somewhere else. And throughout my chats also with a lot of companies that um, are in my network, I've, I noticed that all these companies would retrain the students the moment they graduated. And I started to wonder, what are we not doing at a university? Why is this need for companies to retrain our students when you know, we actually believe that we give them really high quality education? Um, so by, by having that student-centered approach um, and having chats with them, having pizza nights and interviews with them and having, um, you know, just having students interview other students to figure out what is exactly the student need, um, that basically formed the basis of uh, the Erasmus X project. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. To do. Okay, um, as you know that I'm, I'm a big fan, so um, just one question, uh, just to kind of make it a bit clearer to the audience, uh, in terms of 
how does a student get onto this Erasmus X program and what kind of uh, students or you know skill sets do they need to come and come on the program because I believe the program is like an, uh, an, an ancillary program like uh, the students volunteer to come on it uh, but it's not like a formal degree program is that correct that is correct yes um, so basically, um, right now, the minor is a part of the bachelor program for our uh, Faculty of Social Sciences and Behavior. Um, this minor was created to um, support students who couldn't go on an exchange program. So this is a, a, a really COVID-related project. But um, in our other projects, where uh, a lot of students do uh, project work with us uh, as an extracurricular activity, these students come from all over the place. Um, usually they're undergraduate students. We have some master students as well. Um, there's no real prerequisites or criteria or requirements that they have to um, fulfill to, to be able to do a project with us. Um, but if they want to do a project with us, we do want them to understand that they have to go 100% and it's a full commitment um, and it's not just you know, a project for the sake of doing a project. Um, but what we see is that students come up to us with, uh, with ideas. Um, for example, we had a project surrounding sustainability um, in the beginning of this year. And this was a student. Uh, she came up to us and she said, I have five stakeholders um, and I have this many students who want to work on this problem. Can you help us design it? And um, we basically said, well, we can facilitate you in the process, but this is a, a learning opportunity for you and your fellow students. So why don't you design it? Yeah. And um, it was really fantastic to see that without any prior knowledge um, uh, of design thinking or behavioral science, because these were students from communication, from IBA, from economics, from law, they were all together. Um, they basically designed their entire uh, journey themselves together with the stakeholders. And our role in that project was very simple. We were only there to guide the students, to coach them through tough questions and to have a critical view every once in a while and ask them really tough questions as in, are you sure you want to solve this problem? Is this really a problem? Why is it a problem? Um, yeah. or to um, direct them to new stakeholders, as in maybe you should have a chat with this company or that company or talk with some software engineers uh, for your solution. But we didn't do much more than facilitating and guiding the process. So they, the students actually taught themselves. So we're trying to host seminars and sessions and events where students basically present their um, present their work um, to us, to stakeholders, to third parties, whoever is interested. Um, and then from there, depending on how clever their solution is, we will have a look at um, the further development of that solution. And um, right now at Erasmus University, next to Erasmus X, we have another project uh, called Erasmus Ventures. And this is a, a project where startups are uh, validated and facilitated in growing and in developing um, ed tech solutions, but basically any kind of startup can, um, can enlist. Um, but maybe there's a good collaboration with them too um, to see if we can actually further um, develop the student solutions.
Students are having a rough ride this year, no doubt. But if they can document and articulate their experiences, this may be a defining factor of their future success. Yeah, but coming back to the first years and their experience, it's it's been difficult because I, in my uh, role as an international student ambassador with Bangor University, I usually help out with welcoming international students um, to Bangor as well. But the one thing that they had to do was turn everything online. And uh, usually we would have these airport pickups every year where I would also go and have, you know, freshly arrived international students, pick pick them up in uh, the university buses, get them back to Bangor in that two hour journey. You know, you're seeing the place for the first time. Uh, it, It kind of feels like a holiday. Um, and it, I remember my first time was essentially like that, coming here, I felt out in that I was from Manchester Airport to Bangor. It's about two and two and a half hour journey going through different places. It was great, beautiful. And I was t- talking to so many people, people from the university, the ambassadors back then. I was so much looking forward to it. It, it was always like it was like a holiday feeling for me. Hmm. But suddenly this year, it's changed entirely. And uh, it... it it, it was it, people who did go for airport pickups. I mean, no longer ambassadors were not allowed to go for airport pickups, only university staff, a couple of them did go. And in the buses, it was, uh, you know, number of students were considerably reduced. Um, and with all the safety precautions, and rightly so, with all the safety precautions in place, it, I'm sure it was quite difficult for most of, most of them, as if it, it I'm sure it didn't feel like coming to a holiday destination. It would. I, I'm not sure how um, how glad or how um, excited they were to start the new year in such a difficult situation. Uh, and once once students were here, all the events, the welcoming events, they were turned online. So things like uh, we used to have a walking trip of uh, the town where you used to go around. Uh, showing you know where's the closest supermarkets where you can where are the different buildings of university we had to cancel all that so we this year it was just done on an interactive map uh, or through online zoom meetings and uh, one of the things they did do was which was nice you know having a cocktail session on online welcoming students so that we get talking well what i do find really difficult for first years is that it's going to be really difficult even something as simple as making friends, because it is in your first year that you make your close buddies, uh, you know, who you stick with for the whole year. But suddenly, that's been that's taken taken away. It's 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 rather difficult. But then again, universities have been doing some really good things as well. For example, um, arranging um, on, even though it's online sessions, there is way of interacting. They're trying to do as best as they can. It's not that they're not. Um, things like clubs and societies. One of my, I mean, one of my close friends, he is involved in a Lindy Hop society. So the way they are managing at the moment is by doing online sessions. It's and encouraging people to do, you know, staying at home, dancing. Um, but it's not the same, of course. But it's still something. It's not, you know, entirely taken away. So it's 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 difficult, I would say, to say the least. And Kate, 
I wondered, so in the context as an example, if we think about King's College, how has that university adapted to supporting student careers pathways during the turmoil of this year? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think that's sort of, an, in a sense, an existential question that we asked ourselves this year. So I think we've done a number of different things. One is that I think we have put a lot of focus on, on the student's own sense of their own career journey. So their self-awareness, their career readiness and helping students really be confident about where they are on their journey. We call that journey discover, focus, action. And for example, I think it can be quite easy to panic if you don't know where you are on your career journey and then you can't calibrate yourself to take advantage of the right information. There's an awful lot of stuff going on, lots of stories, lots of kind of concern and anxiety in the job market. But if you don't know where you are on your career journey, you don't know really which of that information is relevant to you. So for example, if you don't know what career you want, it can be very easy to panic about not knowing what to put on a CV. But actually, if you're still figuring out what you want to do, then a CV isn't where you want to be focusing your interests. You you want to be thinking about how am I going to decide what I really want to do? How do I look for the right research in the marketplace? So that's been one quite core element. And we, we have done that underpinned by what seems obvious to say, but as Victoria mentioned, a digital career service. So we thought a lot about how we could make it easier for students to access all the information and all the services that we normally offer at a time that suits them in a way that suits them. So for us, that's meant a combination of synchronous and asynchronous content. And we've delivered that across a number of different modes of delivery. So we've been doing virtual one-to-ones, obviously using Teams, but we also have videos and podcasts and texts and interactive e-learning. So a range of different styles, because many of our students are actually currently are around the world and not in London. And I think sort of building on that, one of the things that we've really focused on, I mentioned this a moment ago, is the importance of curating information. So understanding that students are completely overwhelmed by all this information about the labour market, you know, which sectors are up, which sectors are down, what should I be doing, how do I plan ahead, what will the future look like? And so, you know, even tracking that information, let alone processing it and understanding it, has become even more important for us to help students navigate through that information and understand what does it mean to them, whatever stage of their career journey they're on. And then finally, a a big piece of work that makes King's quite distinctive is we have a a very unique approach to surfacing the employability value, particularly attributes and skills from people's subject study. So helping you understand what is it about being a historian that makes me attractive to a graduate employer, for example, or a physicist or a mathematician. So we've done quite a lot of work to help students get the value from the experience they're having right now. So obviously, everybody's worried about the future, what will happen when I leave. But let's focus on what you're actually going to get out of your degree while you're with us. So so those are sort of four different angles that we've taken on helping students at the current time. I think one of the key contrasts is that many of the students taking distance learning programs are people in the middle of their careers. So they might be taking it as a pivot. They're using it as a, as a change of direction. The flip of that is that many of the students coming into Kings are probably coming in thinking, oh, hey, I'd like to do this thing. And then thinking maybe that sector doesn't exist after COVID. Maybe this particular work isn't going to be quite what I thought it was going to be. So we're also trying to support and enable students to be more agile about their career journeys and to understand that there are more than one way to get to a destination. 
and to then have sort of sufficient self-awareness, sufficient sort of understanding of their skills and how those can be deployed to different sectors. And I think that's where you know, the sort of sector specialism that Victoria was describing becomes so important is for students who's, okay, this configuration of my analytical skills works in this way in tax audit and it works in that way in journalism and it works in this way in consultancy. That's really helpful for helping students become a bit more agile. The way that people learn is changing because of online capabilities. I've, I've been recently watching some TikTok videos that, stu- that young people have been doing around careers, um, which have been really engaging and interesting to watch. That might be another way that students are getting information around careers and career planning. And it's about making sure that we are on top of that and that we are helping students to have access to all of the, the kind of resources that, that they need and be able to make the relationships that they need to make to be successful. I think that's a really good point. And I think we as services need to be more agile. You know, it's not enough that we created a digital career service. Our whole means of engagement will need to evolve because students and, you know, older learners are looking in a diversity of places for that source material. If you'd said five years ago that a student would look on TikTok for a careers video, I think we'd be looking at each other going, what? But but I think it does transform that. Victoria, I'm curious. I, I have a perception, I'm sure many people do, that careers is always added on. So how is it different in an online program that's principally delivered as a digital education experience for students? How does that careers sort of element sit? Is it, do you think it's more integrated? Do you think students experience it in a more integrated way because the whole package is online? The students are used to using online tools to do for their learning because they're distance learning students. They don't, ha- in most part, they don't have very much, if any, face-to-face interaction or offline interaction. Although sometimes sometimes they do through teaching centres, but in the most part, they are used to using those digital online tools and learning on an online basis, which is helpful for us because it means that they do see it as kind of much more integrated which is great but one thing we have noticed is a lot of students even though they are doing their learning online don't really think about and reflect on the skills that they are gaining and demonstrating by being distance learning students or doing online learning and I think that's a really interesting challenge that we have which kind of is is the same with all of our kind of interactions we have the students is trying to enable them to realize the skills that they are gaining across the board reflecting on that and then demonstrating that to employers because those things are going to be really valuable to employers. I think that's a really critical point that we're trying to get across to students at the moment is what is it that is different about this experience that will help you communicate to an employer that you are agile, flexible, adaptable, able to look at things in different ways. How has this teaching and learning experience is so different to what you're expecting? How has that helped you think differently about what you can do and what you can bring? And I, I think there's much more that we can do around that and I think if online delivery and, and digital education more broadly is a sort of creative space for students to learn in becomes more established in years to come that's going to become quite a critical factor and I think employers would do well to look out for it and I think students would do well to find good ways to articulate it. And finally some thoughts to leave you with at the end of this episode. So last question then, what resources would you like to share with our listeners in this space? So any books, people, projects, podcasts, or other things that have helped shape your thinking in this area, and perhaps the things that you sort of go back to and like to share with others? Yeah, there's a lot of information in this space, which is great, and lots more emerging, which is fantastic. It's a really engaging area to be looking into, and actually even doing 
I've been doing some small online courses, some free online courses myself, and even putting myself into the shoes of the students by being an online learner as well is incredibly helpful when I'm thinking about that. But I mean, I certainly would advocate looking at Wonk HE website and listening to their podcast, which is always really great. The AdCast resources, which is our the Association of Graduate Careers Advisory Services, it's got lots of resources and information about in this area. Think tanks such as HEPI and the IFS are really useful to listen to. And of course, we're, we're really lucky as well because we, the careers group, work across so many different career services. We can learn a lot from each other, which is fantastic. And we've been, we also have the University of London Centre for Distance Education. We can learn through them too. I'm going to take a slightly more personalised view of this, which is to to encourage people to think about what speaks to you. So, you know, Victoria mentioned TikTok videos. If that speaks to you, if that's a great way for you to learn and you're inspired by that, then that that's a good place to start. I think sometimes I always feel I'm giving a recommendation. I'm sort of talking about my own view of what I experience. So, so I think friends, your peers, your family are always a really great resource, whether you're a professional or whether you're a student. And I think also there is an enormous amount of information overload you know I can't keep up with all the things that Victoria just listed and I just, my reading list is massive and I never get to the bottom of it so I think building in really proper structured time to actually reflect on what you're reading or listening to or watching is really really important so that you don't just sort of overwhelm yourself with all the stuff that you might sort of have access to and and so self-awareness becomes really important then to making good decisions why was that meaningful to me who am I how does it all fit together what have I learned and I think a question that I know is going to come up a lot from employers in the coming months when they're meeting students is what did you do on in lockdown how can you show me that you're sort of tolerant of ambiguity and uncertainty? And even the smallest things, the smallest shifts, the smallest sense of self-awareness, I think, is, is quite a powerful thing to talk about. So I think I would say perhaps to wrap up in thinking about resources is don't feel that you're looking for one answer. You know, it's like the London Underground map, isn't it? There's always a number of ways to get from A to B. And looking at the resources, you know, what speaks to you? That, that's where I would start from. Look at stuff, surf through it, but what speaks to you? There's a, a sentence that I've heard once at a, um, a graduation speech that I was attending, not for my graduation, but um, and, and the speaker said the sentence, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think this has never had more sense than it, than it does now. Um, I think it's, it's an incredibly difficult time, but this is something that we've gone through as, um, as a society, as students, and um yeah a crisis is something to not let go to waste yeah don't be afraid to use that time for good that's the end of this episode i do hope you enjoyed and if you did make sure you drop us a quick review or rating wherever you listen to your podcasts the algorithms love it as do the humans who think oh i might check that out You can also come back next time for a new episode and fresh look at digital transformation and changed priorities. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of our guests this week, salesforce.org for supporting and Carla Ertz for the interview with Farshida. Don't forget the ebook available in conjunction with this episode titled Making the Most of the New Normal, which is available in our show notes and features up-to-date case studies from multiple unis. For all other show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, go to theedtechpodcast.com. 
And you can continue the conversation online at podcast edtech and at salesforce.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.